what kind of methods of medication can you give sick fish? You're not going to give a fish a pill, or are you? I have. Um, so I did have one case with a, a particularly well-trained paku who we managed to target train him and give him um, actually Batril tablets. As a veterinarian in general practice, I would occasionally get asked for advice on sick fish. Our training at vet school on aquatic medicine was pretty sparse, and when a call came in for a goldfish floating upside down or an unsightly growth on the side of a guppy, I would try and look really busy, or head for the door as if I had somewhere else important to be. If avoidance didn't work, I would blow the dust off a couple of old texts on aquatic medicine I have to try and find an answer. With more people living in apartments, meaning less space for conventional pets, keeping an aquarium is a lot more common these days. The price paid for a number of fish also means that the same standard of care that is given to cats and dogs is also expected for fish. There are now veterinarians who have taken their training to a new level. In this podcast, I talked to Lindsay Thomas, a UK-based vet, and her assistant Sky the Cat, who can be heard a few times adding her own opinion during the interview, and find out a bit more about fish medicine, including how to give a pill to a fish. Are you a veterinarian dreaming about working down under in New Zealand? If so, I'd love to help you make that dream come true. Hi, I'm Julie South of VetStaff. VetStaff is New Zealand's only recruitment agency specialising in the Kiwi veterinary sector. We can help you find your dream job down under, from short-term locum assignments through to permanent employment and residency. Because we know God's own Aotearoa New Zealand like the back of our hands, we can match your career aspirations with a clinic that'll suit you best. Whether you're planning to work here for a few months or forever, if it's got anything to do with working in a vet clinic in New Zealand, we can help. Vetstaff.co.nz. You are listening to the Vet Podcast, presented by veterinarian Dr. Brian Greger from New Zealand. Join us as we discuss pet health issues from around the world. I'm excited to be talking to UK veterinarian Lindsay Thomas today. Lindsay spends much of her time treating exotic animals. Now, that would make this a very short podcast if this doesn't include fish. Yep, so I see um, I see pet fish and pond fish as part of my practice. How much different is working with fish to working with the normal domestic animals that vets work with? So I think as with a lot of exotic animals, fish is very husbandry based. So when you're doing fish work, what you're actually tend to be trying to keep right is the water and the filter. The fish are almost secondary in some ways, uh, which is a bit different, although I suppose in some ways similar to reptiles where we're concentrating on UV and heat and things like that. So a lot of the things that we as normal companion animal vets do with cats and dogs and guinea pigs, you can do with fish? Yeah, absolutely. Um, whenever I'm talking to students about fish, I always say to them, just if you're not sure, go back to first principles. So if somebody does present you with a fish and it's got a problem, the first thing you want to do is, is get a history and then you do a clinical exam and then you're going to do your diagnostic test to try and figure out what's going on exactly as you would with a dog or a cat. So um, if, if you are struggling with it in practice, just imagine it's got fur and go from there. Because that was actually something that I was going to bring up. The biggest problem that I found was actually finding a vet who knew something about fish. The first thing I suppose is how common is it that vets work with fish? 
So with pet fish, it's not particularly common. Um, most people who have an interest in fish would have gone into either fish farming, which is kind of more like livestock vetting than companion animal vetting. Um, or if they're really into it, they will have gone actually not from not to the UK, but they would have gone somewhere like the States where they do a lot more kind of big aquarium work and things like that. So it is quite rare in the UK. I'm not obviously sure how, how rare it would be where you are, um, but to find somebody who's willing to deal with fish, which means I often get calls from people that are quite far away and that I can't actually fish physically do anything for the animal just because you can't really travel something three hours uh, especially a fish to see a vet. Is it the kind of thing that if I was practicing a fish that was out of sorts I would be able to give you a ring and from videos and x-rays if we can do x-rays we might talk about that later you may be able to give some pointer to the vet as to what is going on with the animal? Yeah, absolutely. Um, most of us are always happy to speak to people just because if you're doing fish work, you're usually quite interested. So you can natter on for hours about it. But yeah, most most of what you actually need to do as a vet and first opinion practice is get a good husbandry and water quality history. And that's going to be the most useful thing you can do. So let's start right at the start then. I'm Joe Public. I'm bringing in my sick goldfish in a bowl and I've got another 30 of them at home. How do you work out what is wrong with this fish? The others are fine, this one's just a bit out of sorts. Can you just go through the steps? You know, you, you mentioned the water. I mean, one of the quotes that I've heard is that you don't keep fish, you keep water and put fish in them, which is reflecting what you were saying before. Where do you start? Do you start with the water? Do you start with the fish? So I would always start with the water. Um, so husbandry history is particularly important with fish. So you're going to want to ask what type of fish do you have? So the species, what type of setup are they in? Are they in a pond? Are they in a tank? Um, have you got a filter? The answer should always be yes. You should always have a filter with fish. Um, and then you're going to want to go into quite a bit of detail about what type of filter and what type of uh, filter maintenance you're doing. So how often are you cleaning the filter and how are you cleaning it is quite important. You never want to run a filter under the tap because uh, that's going to kill off all your lovely filter bacteria that are basically keeping the water nice for you. And then have you done any water quality testing recently? What were the values? Um, a big pet peeve is when people say, oh, I checked and it was fine because I don't know what your version of fine is. I need to know exact values for what's going on. Um, I'm a little bit pedantic like that. So there's always a bit of a quiz when a client comes to my consult room for the first time, which sometimes they're not expecting. And I suppose a lot of the time you actually have to go to like do a house call. You, you can't bring a fish pond into the clinic. You, you have to go and, and have a look and see what's happening at home. Exactly. So prior to the pandemic, uh, most of the fish work I was doing was going out on house calls to ponds um, and looking at the fish in situ. And that's actually really helpful because you can then see the, the filter system and everything in situ and what the pond looks like. And you can get a lot more information that way. So if somebody is bringing a koi to me, I often ask them to take photographs of the pond as well so that I can get a bit more of an idea what's going on. So we'll ask a really simple question here, Lindsay. The kind of conditions that you are looking for and treating in the animals are the same, again, as we would see in your standard companion animals, your farm animals, humans, tumours, lacerations, infections, parasites. The main things clients are going to present for are things like skin infections, fin infections, possibly yeah, tumours, lacerations and things. But a lot of problems you're going to see in fish are actually secondary to husbandry issues. So it's kind of more similar to reptile and bird practice than it is to cat and dog in that respect, in that you, you can treat the infection with either antibiotics or antifungals or conservative kind of water 
management um, but you want to find the underlying problem as well otherwise this is going to keep happening again and again. You mentioned antibiotics. I used to do quite a lot of pig work back in the day and one of the things that we always were very conscious of was if you have got sick pigs and you put antibiotics into the feed the sick pigs won't eat the feed and that pig's going to die so you're stopping the others from getting it. What kind of methods then of medication can you give sick fish? You're not going to give a fish a pill, or are you? I have. Um, so I did have one case with a, a particularly well-trained paku who we managed to target train him and give him um, actually Batril tablets. That was a fun conversation with the manufacturer trying to figure out if there was anything toxic to fish in there. Um, and we also were giving him nitrofungal capsules because he was massive, so he needed a whole capsule. Um, but generally, it is easier to, um, if the fish is big enough, give them an injection. So that can be intramuscular, uh, it can be intrasalomic, uh, or you can give IV injections to fish. But generally, you're going to want a little bit of sedation to, if you're giving large volumes particularly so they don't move too much. Um, and then if I'm doing oral medication, uh, I often mix it with a gel food. So you can get, so rapashi would be a good example of, of a gel food you can get for fish. It comes as a powder, you mix it with hot water, and then you mix in a known amount of your medication. And then once it is set as a jelly, I weigh it, and then process of it, you can work out how much medication is going to be per gram or microgram of the feed, cut it into appropriate size pieces and give it to the fish that way. If you mix something like bloodworm in with it or brine shrimp, that often improves palatability. But the rapashi food is generally pretty well taken by most fish. So is there times when you'll actually medicate in the water, you will put whatever your therapeutic agent is, rather than individually in the animal, you'll actually pop it in the water? Sometimes, although I prefer not to do that where possible, um, because you don't know the effects it's going to have on other things. So antibiotics, I would never put in the tank because you're going to kill your filter bacteria and then you're going to end up with water quality issues. Um, antifungals, I might. But also it depends on the type of tank and the type of fish. If it's a tank with a lot of live bearing fish, for example, guppies or mollies or swordtails, and they're having fry, if you put antifungals in the water, you're going to end up with problems with your fry. So you do need to be aware of that. So the most often, the most common thing that I put in water is actually for freshwater fish would be sodium chloride at very low levels, um, almost as like an, a little electrolyte drink for them. So the same as we give kind of low level electrolyte solutions to mammals as, as fluid therapy. If you put very small amounts of sodium chloride into the water, you just decrease the amount of salts they're losing across their gills into the fresh water by increasing the amount of salt in the water very slightly. Um, so that's a really good kind of conservative management treatment almost like fluid therapy for fish so you're talking about the bacteria on the filters where's the bacteria come from is the, is that bacterial flora actually present op or preloaded on the filters when you buy a filter or does that just build up over time in the tank so it builds up. So a lot of people will use a filter start, um, which is something you can buy from pet shops and has a mixture of the right bacteria in it. And that kind of kickstarts your filter going. So when you're maturing a tank for the first time, you kind of fill it with water, you condition your water, which means you're taking the chlorine and chloramines out of it. Then you put in the filter and the filter starts so you can start off bacterial colonization. And then you actually want to feed that tank with something. So often people put fish food into rot um, so that that's producing uh, kind of nitrogen nitrogenous waste that the filter can feed on and, and get going. Your other option, if you have another tank that you are absolutely certain is disease free, is to take one of the filter sponges from the filter in the mature tank and put it in the new one. 
and that kind of kickstarts your filter going a bit quicker. So that's that's something that a lot of people with multiple tanks will do. Actually, one thing that just occurred to me, Lindsay, when you were talking about giving injections. Now, I probably shouldn't be saying this to a vet who does a lot of fish work, but I'm a fisherman. <laughs> um, if I'm doing my catch and release fishing, um, one of the things that is absolutely drummed into us is don't touch the fish. You know, always use a wet cloth or gloves or something. I would imagine the same applies when you're actually being a vet to, to fish. You, you can't pick them up in your bare hands. Yeah, absolutely. Never touch a fish with your bare hands um, because they obviously have very, very delicate skin and and scales and you could damage them and cause further problems. And if you do have a particularly big or a particularly fractious fish, I would advise giving a little bit of sedation before handling just so you avoid accidentally damaging them. Something which is probably a little bit topical, probably more so in your part of the world than ours at the moment, is infectious diseases as in COVID. If you have got an infectious agent, just the same as New Zealand and and a lot of countries UK are doing, if you've got somebody with COVID, they're isolated. You would do the same thing if you have got a sick fish in a group of fish, school of fish, whatever. One of your prime things that you will be doing would be removing that from the group of fish and isolating it. Yep. So this can be very difficult with pet fish because people usually have one tank, one setup and no real option to isolate. But yeah, in an ideal world, and I do have quite a few koi keepers who have this as an option, you would have a hospital tank or a hospital pond that you can put sick animals in so that you can monitor them more closely, catch them up more easily and administer medications as necessary. Um, or as the case with my lovely Paku, uh, you can target train fish. They are surprisingly intelligent, um, goldfish particularly. So if you did need to medicate one and feed it a specific thing, you can do that with them. You just need a dedicated owner who's going to put the time into it. Do fish pine when they're by themselves? I saw some research that came in through the week actually where they were talking about, I think it was farmed salmon, where they found that they actually did better when the density got up. If the density got too high, they weren't doing too well. When the density got really low, they actually didn't do too well. Um, I I didn't read it right through as to whether it was a psychological thing or whether it was a physical thing, but is there any problems if you are pulling a, a fish that has spent its life with a group of fish and put it by itself? So they're they're prey and social species. Um, They actually have quite complex emotional capabilities, a lot of the research now shows. Um, So yeah, it is going to be stressful if a shoaling species is all of a sudden pulled and put on its own. So to combat that, you want to have lots of hiding places um, or things that the fish perceives as hiding places, at least, uh, possibly not hiding from you. Uh, But yeah, it's, it's kind of cruel to be kind if you need to treat the fish you can't really have it in a huge pond where you're having to chase it around with a net for an hour before you can get hold of it, uh, which is what I've had to do in some situations. That's definitely worse than just being on your own for a week or two. Now, I've seen a few YouTube videos of people doing surgery on fish. So doing surgery is a thing on a fish. How common is it to do surgery on a fish? Um, in my experience, it isn't hugely common, mainly because when I'm charging for doing a fish operation, I charge the same as a dog or a cat operation. Uh, people generally aren't willing to pay that on a goldfish that costs £2. But you do get dedicated owners who are willing to to spend some money and do things. So I've done things like tumour removals on fish. And I know definitely know people who've done celiotomies, so actually opening the fish up to do internal operations on them. So it definitely is done. It's not particularly common in the UK, at least. And you can just use sutures and just use the standard human and veterinary surgery techniques? Yes, so obviously you need to be a little bit careful with your skin prep. 
because you really don't want to be scrubbing fish skin you're going to cause all sorts of problems and because of the nature of a fish it's an aquatic animal and you do need to keep them wet if you're bringing them out of the water to do surgery it's never going to be sterile so i would say in you do need in my experience to use a little bit of um, prophylactic antibiosis which obviously would be very frowned upon in a terrestrial animal where you have a lot more control over the sterility of your procedure you mentioned earlier actually with some of your medication about tranquilizing or anesthetizing fish how do you do that so you have a, a few different options. This is one of the times when I would be using in-water medication most commonly. But obviously you don't want to do, put your anaesthetic in the tank. Not that anybody is likely to bring you an entire fish tank because it's heavy. Um, but what you ideally want is when a fish comes in, the client to bring the fish in some water and then to bring a separate bag of water um, from the tank. Because uh, it's quite important with fish, you don't want to be switching them into new water. Suddenly that upsets them. Um, and then I will usually mix the anaesthetic up in a little bit of water and then kind of drizzle that into the water the fish is in mixing it to make sure you've got an even distribution you don't want them coming into a big cloud of high concentrates uh, that's going to end badly for the poor things um, so you using drugs like 2-phenoxyethanol or Aquaset as it's known over here um, you can use standard veterinary drugs like propofol uh, the one problem with propofol is you're not going to be able to see your fish after you've put it in because it will turn the water white a lot of people use clove oil or eugenol. It is quite difficult to get clove oil to actually mix into the water unless you mix it with something like ethanol, which is also an anaesthetic in fish. So I'm not a huge fan of it because I find it very difficult to control the concentration that you're getting. And then there is a drug called MS222, which is licensed for fish. But if you're using that one, you must buffer it because it turns the water pH to one or two, which is obviously horribly acidic for the poor things. If you're not using in water treatment, you can do intramuscular, so ketamine and alfaxan have been studied in fish, um, and IV, propofol, ketamine, etc. have also been studied. But I'd say they're much less common methods of anaesthetizing or sedating fish. Well, that sort of answers my next question with your IV anaesthetic. I was thinking, well, one, can you give IV treatment? And there's the answer. And number two, can you take blood tests? Can you run blood tests on fish? Yeah, absolutely. Um, your biggest problem is going to be finding a lab that's happy to handle them. Although if you speak nicely to most exotic labs, they'll at least give it a go for you. They just probably won't be able to provide any reference ranges. But yeah, you can you can go from the um, the tail vein is generally where you're getting blood and where you're giving IV injections. Everything else is a little bit difficult to um, to access unless you're, for example, doing a euthanasia. You can go intracardiac if you're if you've got good aim. Actually, that's probably something that we should talk about, isn't it? How, I mean, being a fisherman, I know how I kill fish, but we won't talk about it. Um, <laughs> how do you euthanize a fish humanely? So obviously in veterinary practice, we are quite limited in, in this country, and I imagine most other countries, in how we're allowed to do things. There are no specific guidelines, but generally the acceptable methods are um using using an overdose of an anesthetic um, agent that's just generally the most accepted version of doing it i tend to do an in-water anesthetic so that the fish is um, is still and then i either go iv or intracardiac with something like pentobarbital and then the really important thing is that fish are incredibly resistant to hypoxia so just because their heart has stopped and they're not in water and they're not breathing 
doesn't mean they're not recoverable. So you must always destroy the brain tissue in fish, either by concussion or by pithing. But there was actually a really interesting study at a, a fish or an aquatic conference a few years ago that a student had done, where she had used the American Veterinary Medical Association guidelines on how to euthanize fish. So she'd used in-water anesthetics and usually left them so there were no gill movements for 30 to 60 minutes afterwards. She then took some of the fish out and placed them in anesthetic-free water. Um, and some of them she decapitated and then waited to see how long it took the heart to stop. In some of these animals that were decapitated, it was taking several hours for the heart to stop, even though they hadn't been breathing for half an hour before they were removed from the water. And then in the fish that were put into anesthetic free water after they hadn't been breathing for 30 minutes, there was a 96% recovery rate. So it's really, really important to destroy that brain tissue or you might have a bit of a Lazarus moment when the owner gets home. Let's keep looking, Lindsay, at the at the diagnostics. Again, I have seen a lot of pictures of X-rays of fish, so you can you can X-ray a fish. Yeah, absolutely. Um, depends on on the fish. Uh, I have very occasionally done the quickest X-ray in the world, conscious. Um, with but that's usually with a kind of sick or moribund fish that we're trying to get a quick answer for the owner generally um, a fish that's just a bit unwell or has for example a buoyancy issue and you're trying to get a look at the swim bladder you're going to want to sedate that animal before you take it take an x-ray otherwise it's just not going to lie still on the plate for you so i'm i'm thinking as well ultrasounds U- ultrasound works really well through water like you're, you're looking for the contrast between water densities i suppose to simplify ultrasounds i would take it then that ultrasonography actually works pretty good on fish yes yeah, so your main issue is going to be probe size because a lot of the fish you're being brought are very small um, so you do need a, a special kind of small probe to be able to get decent amount of detail on there but yeah absolutely ultrasound is a really good option um, particularly if you are concerned about tumors or reproductive pathology that's going to be a, an excellent modality to use yeah i know that this isn't your area of expertise at all but public zoos fish farming what's the difference with what those guys do and i think you sort of alluded to it earlier as far as the fish farming being more like chicken farm and pig farm vets but what kind of work are the vets that are working with the, the large public aquariums and the fish farm stuff doing that you're not doing? So for fish farming, as, as we said previously, it's very similar to, to livestock or is livestock farming, essentially. Um, so it's mainly going to be infectious disease control, um, but also welfare monitoring, making sure that things are being done properly, um, making sure that the animals are, are well cared for. So they're going to be doing a lot of water quality stuff and a lot of filtration stuff um, with the farmers and they're also going to be doing a lot of herd health medicine so in the the times I have worked with larger collections so I had a um, a, a koi breeder who had a thousand fish so in that situation you are doing things like euthanizing the the most ill animals and then doing post-mortems and histopathology to get your diagnosis so you can treat the rest of them so kind of sacrificing an animal to save the rest so that's something that we don't do with pet fish owners tend to be a lot more attached to them on an individual basis and they don't really want to do that but that definitely is is a a well well used technique for for farmed animals and then public aquaria again it's kind of a combination between the two you've got these often large community tanks of animals and you might have something that's affecting every animal in the system or you may have an animal that's uh, a, a problem that's affecting a particular species so it is kind of herd health 
but equally a lot of those animals are high value and also a lot of the time the keepers are really really attached to their animals they spend all day looking after them so they do get treated more on an individual basis as well and particularly the the large very charismatic species so sharks and things like that um you do often those are the, the animals that they end up doing more surgery on to try and get them better um because because they are kind of more important in some ways obviously all lives are important but in some ways more more important for conservation should we say and just to finish up here Lindsay for the listeners who have got their fish tank you know whether it's in the vet practice with the nice fish tank sitting in the front to make it look homely or the domestic fish tank at home is there some take-home messages as to what simply people should be doing as far as the health of their fish yeah, so so as I say, a lot of it is husbandry related. So making sure that before you even get fish, you've set up your tank, you've got your filter maturing and you're keeping an eye on water quality before you've even put fish in is really important. And then making sure that you maintain that throughout you know, your, your fish keeping career, the water quality is going to be really, really important. Never, ever, ever run a filter under the tap, please, unless you're throwing it away, uh, because you will kill all your filter bacteria and you're going to end up with really bad water quality issues. So when you're cleaning filters, do it in tank water you've taken from the tank that you're then going to throw away. That's a, a really common thing I get. Being aware of the species you've got, particularly in tropical tanks, and being aware of how big some of the species grow. It's a complete fallacy that fish grow to the size of their tank. Uh, they grow as big as they grow and if they've died before they've got to full size it's probably because they couldn't cope with the environment they were living in and there is something called the big fish campaign in the UK and I'm sure there are similar campaigns around the world highlighting which species you need to be aware of this of things like red paku and certain types of catfish that can get absolutely massive and I suppose the final thing I would ask is if you think your fish are sick please talk to a vet who likes fish before you use every medication available at the pet shop because a lot of them are really dangerous um, and the line between treatment and toxicity is very fine. And although they are available for you to use over the counter, um, it's always frustrating when a vet sees a fish and it's had four chemicals in the water before you've even got to it. And at this point, it probably has a whole host of other problems as well because of that. So please, for your fish vet's sake, don't use over the counter treatments until you've spoken to somebody. Lindsay, thank you very, very much for your time. No worries, no worries at all. And that's it for another episode of the VET Podcast. All of our links are in one place at bio.fm forward slash VET Podcast. On behalf of me, Brian Greger, and everybody else involved in the making of this podcast, thanks for listening, and we'll talk again soon.